Hey guys, and welcome to episode 51 of Underrated, a show where we talk about great films that just don't get enough love. I'm your host, Gabriel Green, and I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. How's it going, man? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing very well. had a really great uh, week of watching movies. I'm excited to get into that. Uh, and today we are joined by a very special guest. It's uh, Chris Heflin from Article Asylum. Welcome to Underrated, Chris. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, so you want to just you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and whatever you might be up to online? Uh, sure. I, uh, I guess you could say I'm, I'm kind of the technical guru of Article Asylum. I uh, also write a few reviews here and there. And I've also, um, I love numbers, love statistics, uh, and I follow box office stuff, uh, box office numbers, uh, like a hawk. Uh, generally speaking, I can, I can quote almost any number or at least research it. Uh, but if, if anyone's curious about following me, which I, I mean, I don't know why you would be, but why not? Uh, I'm at, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Dalen07, that's D-E-Y-L-I-N-0-7, um, but beyond that, yeah, I just um, just do whatever I feel like doing, and I write my own rules, and I'm a I'm a rebel without a clue. An inspiration to all of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, before we move on, uh, I'd ask you guys if you enjoy this show to please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. If you do that, uh, we will be grateful in this world and the next. Um, so, since uh, today is your pick, Chris, I want uh, what are we looking at this week? Okay, so we're we're looking at uh, uh, what dreams may come. So um, yeah, this is a film that came out in 1998. Uh, it actually won, uh, I think, a couple of uh, Academy Awards. Best special which, effects, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, best visual effects. Because I got the Blu-ray right here, which is awesome. Um, and it's uh, yeah, in my opinion, it's one of Robin Williams' best dramatic roles uh, to, yeah, to he's, that he has ever done. Nice. All right. Uh, before we move into the main review, have either of you seen any cool movies this week that you want to mention? Uh, let's start with uh, you, Chris. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, cool movies. I guess that doesn't count Kingsman 2. Uh, Boo. <laughs> uh, Blade Runner 2049. I saw that last night. It is, uh, it's a really good movie. It is. Uh, the visuals were fantastic. I, I kind of regret that I, I'm not going to see the film in IMAX, but uh, it was a really, uh, really tight film. It was, it felt better than the original. Um, yes. It, it didn't feel as gritty as the original, and it's probably a complaint that I have, but it's not a massive complaint. It's more of a nitpick because uh, I don't feel I don't feel the film was perfect, but it was still just um, I don't know. It, it's it's very close to being my film of the year. I so I have had a uh, a busy week in terms of school, but and uh, I I wouldn't really recommend this, but I've just kind of put on movies while studying. So I've seen a few recently. Um, Hulu has put on all of the Godzilla movies from the nineties <laughs> and on. Oh no! Uh, and so those are super easy to just put on and do whatever, study, write a paper or whatever, because it's. The movies are so silly and inconsequential. It's, you know, I'll just write a sentence, look up, and see some poorly built miniature getting destroyed, laugh at it, and then keep on, <laughs> keep on writing. Um, but apart from those, I also saw Source Code for the first time. Oh, nice! And uh, uh, I really liked it. Um, I don't know for whatever reason I thought it was like 
a mo- like it got really mediocre reviews and nobody really liked it. And then I I saw how that uh, it's like a ninety two on Rotten Tomatoes, and my mm-hmm. brother bought it. So we're like, oh well, we might as well watch this. Uh, and so yeah, I really enjoyed it. I I love that it's almost entirely set on the train. I thought for sure that you know at least halfway they were going to get off and it was going to turn into this sprawling adventure film with he and the girl, but. The fact that it was just super focused on this one instance and like this, the story keeps growing around it. It was just a really cool uh, idea for a movie. And obviously Jake Gyllenhaal is a great actor. So is a, a captivating lead performance. Yeah. That, that, it's such a just watchable and likable movie. You know, it has a, it has a great concept. It doesn't get too serious, but just is so fun to just experience, I think. And, and it, it's, it's also, pretty smart i think and uh and how it deals with its ideas and uh uh, all that and concepts yeah i so i do have maybe a few issues but they're all with the end and i mean i know it's been out for a while but i still don't want to spoil it there's there's a couple things i don't think all line up perfectly um but just like you said it's super enjoyable and it's a it's an easy movie to sit down and, and just watch just because of how likable it is. Um, and then I watched the indie horror movie, They Look Like People. And I think this is what you'd call mumblecore. And it's not a genre that I am typically a fan of. It, it's, it utilizes a lot of um, improvised dialogue, almost no composed score. Um... They, they try to be as naturalistic as possible. And a lot of the time, for me, in, like, in the attempts to being natural, it just feels like really stilted conversation and weird dialogue because it's not, they're not working off of a set-in-stone script. Um, I think the reason people do this is either uh, you, you do want to get that authentic performance or... You just really don't have any sort of time or money, and you're like, yeah, let's make a movie and let's call it, you know, Mumblecore. Let's pretend we know what we're doing. But this one. <laughs> like found footage? Yeah, pretty much. But this one actually felt like it used all of the strengths of this kind of genre. Um, the relationships between the two leads, who are, who are these uh, best friends, and the the girl one of their girlfriends and like her friends and the dynamic between everybody feels incredibly real the way they joke with each other feels really authentic it never feels scripted uh and that's i guess that's exactly what they're going for but it really just feels like we're seeing a moment in this life of these people who you know for all we know are living you know just a few miles from us because of how real everybody feels um and the scares were very sparse but or sorry the the scares were very sparse and when they did happen though they were set up so well that it felt completely earned like we almost the movie lulls you into a sense of okay we're back it's just about the drama right now and then we just have this tension filled scene with creepy imagery and then the movie just keeps moving along so you never know when to feel safe um so if it's very slow moving, it feels very indie, very low budget. But if you think you can tolerate a movie like that, um, I highly recommend it. I enjoyed it a lot. Hmm. And then lastly, 
I watched the original Blade Runner in preparation for 2049, which I will hopefully oh be seeing later tonight. And uh, I'm I'm a big fan of it. I feel like I like it more and more after every uh, viewing. It's, for whatever reason, I almost feel like I know more about Deckard as a character every single time I watch it to where it, the first time I saw it, I was like, this is a very pretty looking movie, even though it's in, like super gritty and um, the entire tone is just very dark. But uh, a, a word that's used to describe it a lot, I I agree with to an extent, but definitely whenever I first saw it, it was just that it feels very cold and lifeless. Yes. Um, and yes. all of <laughs> everything good about it is just aesthetic yes. and almost like aesthetic alone. But I honestly, I've, I've found myself becoming more emotionally invested in the story with every subsequent viewing. Um, to the point to where this most recent time, I was I, I feel like Deckard is actually a really well written character, and there's actually a lot of good character work going on with him. Um, He's a character, but well, he is a character, to me. and <laughs> I think that he's. I, I think there's a lot of stuff to be picked up on uh, with uh, recurring viewings, so. I I like I said I, I like it more and more every time I see it and uh, I'm real after we finished it we watched the three short films that are meant to bridge the gaps so we watched that immediately after and uh, I'm really ready to uh, to see this movie now especially after the glowing reviews honestly I, yeah I was gonna say uh, my, me personally when it comes to the original Blade Runner I can't I I want to say I can't stand it um, I. I understand why people like the film so much. Um, the thing is, the, the film is just full of atmosphere. Um, but it's such a slow crawl of a film that it just drains me uh, anytime I've tried to watch it. I've watched it twice. Uh, I did not subject myself to it this time around because I just didn't want to... I, I didn't want to go into 2049 being like, well... <laughs> I made it through Blade Runner again, and now I'm going to go sit through this because Blade Runner 2049 is a very long film. It's just as, it feels just as long as the original Blade Runner, but it doesn't like the pacing and the editing feels so much better, even though you're still in a very atmospheric environment. It just feels like a much better film. Yeah. Um, so I, I also, I watched, um, I actually went to the, I got to see it in, in a theater, uh, the original Blade Runner for the first time uh, the day before I watched 2049. And I had, I went in with zero expectations because everything everyone had ever said about it made me pretty sure that I, I would hate it. Because <laughs> it <laughs> seems to be the kind of film that's just drenched in pretension and ambi Our ambiguity, house. which just means they didn't write the story and I have to write it for them after I see it. Uh, <laughs> so, but I... It did impress me. I mean, his visuals and atmosphere are, you know, second second to none. Um, it's mm -hmm. just every second of screen time. It's just, it's just it just pulls you in through its visuals, through uh, Vangelis' score and cinematography and all that. Uh, everything that at least got put into it is just astonishing, um, and completely holds up to today. On the other hand, the human story and like the existential questions it asks. Uh, did nothing whatsoever for me, aside from a couple Rudger Hauer moments and like odd little bits here and there. As a whole, I found it completely cold and empty. Uh, 
both mm-hmm. emotionally and intellectually. Like the questions it asked, you know, is Decker a replicant? I was like, I don't care. I don't care about Decker. He's not a person. He's not. He's there's there's nothing. There's no soul underneath the underneath the character as it was written, or like who the uh, his the weird creepy Hispanic guy that kind of shows up who he is. I, I, it's like none of these characters are presented in a way that is mildly intriguing on any human level. So I, I really <laughs> is he a replicant? I don't know. Don't care. Kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> so then going out of that to 2049, I really, really like this movie. It, it's still, it's a bit cold, a little bit too long. And like, I'm always on the, for both films, I'm like always on the cusp of just about to become bored because the, the way the pacing is. Mm. Um, yeah. But however, I felt that. even though this film is an, almost an hour longer than the original, I I was much more engaged. Just the, there, there's actual humanity here. Just movies are so much better with with uh, actual you know emotion. Um, and so yeah, I I just felt every question that the first one asked was asked in a much more interesting and emotionally invested way. All of the characters felt so much more human, and I could engage in them much more. Like. I think it asked it, you know, took the questions of the first one and pushed them farther and went in different directions and explored yep. a, a whole bunch of new themes um, in, I think, mostly very satisfying ways. Um, and then the the visuals. Oh, my gosh. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. And, I, and I've said that before, but this is this really, really is um, that opening shot, the opening shot gives you a feeling of scope it gives you a feeling of also the the kind of the coldness i would feel like of the entire um uh just how i don't know just how barren the entire world kind of feels mm-hmm. and how just off off center everything kind of is but that opening shot is just it's just gorgeous and and it doesn't show that much i'm not spoiling anything for you james i'm really not um but just that in, in alone was just like I, I was sitting there going, "Wow, that's awesome!" Yeah, all the all the establishing shots and just the the way the environment is created is is so absorbing and visually interesting. And um, I think the question it asks really interesting questions about AI and identity and all that stuff. Um, what is so, human? Yeah, and just, just I think a very very satisfying and emotionally engaging. To a point, it is Denis Villeneuve after all. It can't be too emotional, else. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, um, if I, if I could, if I could, real quick, also just I want to give a shout out to both Ryan Gosling for an incredible performance, and I am in love with Ana de Armas. She's she, his, his AI, right? Yeah, that's that's his AI. She does. I mean, the the level of emotion in both of those actors was phenomenal, in my opinion. It had me so interested in their characters. It had me so interested in, and that's that's what pulled me along the ride. I wanted to know what happened next between these two characters, mm-hmm. and it, that that was just. I mean, honestly, it was fantastic. I mean, really, the whole ride was fantastic. Yeah, um, if you like the first one, I think you'll love this. If and if you're on the fence with the first one, I think there's a there's enough different and new here. I think to bring in uh, people who weren't you know totally sold on a Scott's film. Absolutely. 
Um, and then I saw Kingsman 1 and 2. Uh, first oh, Kingsman yeah. is, I think, aside from a couple incredibly tasteless scenes, is pretty much perfect, uh, you know, send up of, you know, Bond films in the genre, but also not not to the point where it's a spoof, but simply it also is a fully, I think, satisfying emotional and uh, journey on its own. Uh, Taron Egerton is a total star. Um, he is. And a wonderful uh, side cast, Colin Firth, is just a doll. Sam Jackson's uh, villain also in that film is yes. awesome. Very charismatic. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so and then coming off of that to Kingsman 2, I, I think Ooh. I was uh, – I had heard enough negative reviews to where I was – I kind of lowered my expectations, including uh, <laughs> your very scathing review, Chris. Oh, man. Uh, I had and, a terrible review on it. And so going into it, I really enjoyed it. It's deeply problematic. The plot, the characters, the pacing. There's so many issues and like needless side plots and really – dumb choices I think they made and so also many. trying to push the tastelessness of the first one even further in unnecessary ways. However, it's fun. It's, I, I, I had just a, the biggest goofy grin on my face the entire time, even as I was like annoyed at, at certain plot progressions. Um, but it's just, I think it's just a very enjoyable ride. The cast is again, incredible. Mark strong is just beautiful, a beautiful man. Uh, <laughs> I love Mark Strong. I'll watch anything he's in. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. And Taron Egerton's great, and I, I think that there's a really solid emotional core that I think continues the the uh, journeys of the characters from the previous film in satisfying ways. And the action, oh my gosh, the action in this film is amazing. Um, there are like three or four sequences that I I could I could watch on repeat for eternity and never get tired of them. There's this way that Matthew Vaughn shoots action scenes uh, and there's a lot of digital effects a lot of stitching together different shots but he th he does it in a way that just creates so much momentum and energy every shot is as dynamic and cool as it could possibly be and it, the way the way every movement leads into the other in this really beautiful fluid way without any quick cutting is just just for me as someone who loves action scenes it's just pure joy to watch um and there's a lot of it so i think that that Helped me get over a lot of the flaws the film had. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it's it's deeply problematic, very flawed. But for me, it was just a very a, just a very enjoyable ride. Can, can I argue with you right now? <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. <clears throat> In my eyes, the action scenes number one were trying to up the ante from the church scene from the first film. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, I don't and have a problem with that. Well, no, but that's, that's, <laughs> that is a problem. That's an inherent problem with the film. Because that church scene, you only have one scene like that in the entire Kingsman 1. It's a buildup in a sense. You have that scene and then you're left going, whoa, that was intense. Well, now we're going to take those types of action scenes and do nothing but that in the entire Kingsman 2. All action scenes have to be this. Yeah. But, there's uh -huh. a, but there's a problem with that, though. <laughs> there's a problem with that, though. The problem is that, number one, all of those quick cuts that you love so much, they, they, they are not done. They're not done as well as in the, fight, the, the church fight scene in the first Kingsman. You can obviously tell what is CGI because the CGI is atrocious in these fight scenes. You can also tell uh, where a cut was made. It's not as fluid as that church scene. 
I feel like they tried to up the ante so much that they had to go into using CGI. The CGI didn't have enough time to... They didn't have enough time to really work on it to it, to really get it looking nice. And it just pulled me out of those those action scenes <clears throat> so much. Um, I'm, I'm saying they're, they're, they're good action scenes. They're really nice to watch. They're fun. They're, they're, they, they have a good pacing to them. But the editing, I still feel like, was, was a bit trash compared to the actual church scene where it made it look like it was one full take that they were doing without all with that entire scene. Um, like I said, it just, it, they just did made it look, they, they tried too hard. They tried way too hard. Yeah. I, I can agree with that. It's just, I think the visual inventiveness is, was so incredible. And unlike in anything that's being done in action that I, I, I really don't care. Well, yeah, no, no, that's the thing. I, my, my criticisms are just simply from the fact that I was disappointed. I, I was so pumped up for this because I love the first one so much. It felt a lot like um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which is a film that I think is also trying too hard um, with yeah. a messy plot. I, I like both of them. I think they both have really good emotional bits and a lot of, they're both very fun, enjoyable films, but also the, the, the they're kind of trying too much in the, the the narrative and is kind of broken. Um, so yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I found it very enjoyable. Chris didn't, but uh, <laughs> I'm right. I mean, I, for, for what it was, I mean, it was, it was an okay experience. It's just that me and my girlfriend walked out of the theater, literally ripping that film, a new <laughs> one and just going through every single like plot hole we could think of and just everything that made no sense. And that was stupid and that was dumb. And we were just like, Wow, this was so. I mean, I'm not saying the first one was flawless. Pretty sure you could do the same thing, but the the problems with this film just it it they were more more than the good things, and it was just hard for me to ignore. Yeah, I, I can see that. All right, now, so is there anything else you guys want to mention before we move into the main topic? Well, I haven't seen either Kingsman, so I have, I don't get to yell at either of you, which is unfortunate. You haven't seen the first one? I haven't even seen the first one. You need to see the first one. Oh, yeah. you need to see the first one. That's 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 such a good uh, it's such a good um, uh, homage to uh, uh, like the old spot or uh, uh, old spy thrillers of the past. It's so it's so good. It looks amazing. I, I want to see it. And I mean, just the trailers for this second one looks incredible. All right, uh, let's begin our review for what dreams may come. What Dreams May Come was released in 1998. It's based on the Richard Matheson novel of the same name. It was directed by Vincent Ward on a budget of $85 million, and it only grossed $71 million. It stars Robin Williams, Annabelle Ciora, Cuba Gooding Jr., Max von Sydow, Rosalind Chow, and Werner Herzog's face. That happens. Uh, <laughs> it was shot by Eduardo Serra, who's behind other um, really gorgeous films such as Unbreakable and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2. Oh, wow. It was written by Ronald Bass, and the score was composed by Michael Kamen. And I'm going to get you to read a brief synopsis, Chris, if you don't mind. Uh, after he dies in, in a car crash, a man searches heaven and hell for his beloved wife. All right. Um, so, Chris, this is your pick. Uh, why don't you tell us you know, why you wanted to bring it on the show, I mean, I guess besides to make us weep like infants? Ah, um, well, I mean, the whole concept of, of your podcast is to, you know, find movies that are absolutely underrated. Uh, 
films that you feel like that when they released, they were totally unappreciated at the time and obviously are probably kind of a cult classics. Um, it, it, honestly, that's the main reason why I, I picked this film. I Even though it won an Academy Award, I still feel like this goes under the radar as far as uh, Robin Williams' uh, filmography. Um, it's a beautiful film. Visually, it's stunning. Uh, but that's not the part that I focus on in the film. I love the acting. You know, kind of like mm-hmm. how we were talking about in Blade Runner, how there's so much, or Blade Runner 2049, how there's so much emotion. Not Blade Runner. <laughs> No, not Blade Runner. There's no emotion in Blade Runner. You guys are really testing me here. <laughs> um, but the uh, just the acting from both Robin Williams and uh, Annabella uh, Ciara, in my opinion, is fantastic. Uh, the but the visuals, yes, the visuals are where everything uh, really hones in. I, I just feel like that it's a story. Uh, that poses questions. I think it's something that, you know, if you like that you want to film, this is what this is. I mean, this is this is something that, that, that can be brought into for, like, discussions on films. There's more to it than the visuals, I guess you could say. So, yeah, that's my whole concept of wanting to bring this over. Um, I think it's a... I just think it's a really good, underrated Robin Williams film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did want to talk a bit about the critical reaction to this film, which I find very odd. Um... Because, I mean, it has some serious flaws, and I'll, we'll get into them later. Yeah. But I, I don't see how someone could watch this and not at least be moved on some level. Um, yeah. And uh, what's more odd is that a lot of the uh, Rotten Tomatoes reviews just seem, like, bitter and venomous against the film. Like, they're, they're angry at it for something. And hmm. I, really, I really don't understand that. Like, yeah, the, like, as I suspected, the audience score is at like the uh, critic score is at 54% and the audience rating is at 84%. So there's obviously some kind of disconnect that I, I don't, I really don't understand. And it, it's really odd how this film has just completely disappeared from the public like consciousness. I really, I, I've never heard anyone talk about this film. Mm-hmm. I think I saw a poster and that's like the extent of my knowledge before you brought it on. Yeah, so I, I, this is definitely a great uh, film for this show. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like this should be, uh, you know, most people want to talk about uh, Dead Poet Society as being one of Robin Williams' most, you know, critically acclaimed dramatic roles. I feel like, if anything, this should be a number two or somewhere on that, at least top five. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just, I personally, I don't see why this film would, would have been so critically panned um, because it's it's... If anything, just go watch the film for the visuals. I mean, mm-hmm. for 1998, those are some impressive freaking visuals. Yeah, yes. There's a lot of moments where like even now, as someone who's used to today's standards, where I was like, this is just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, yeah, R- Roger Ebert actually really liked it. He gave it a three and a half stars out of four. That's incredible. Well, one thing I mean to ask you, have either of you read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce? I have not. Regrettably, no, I have not. I, I have a feeling that uh, Matheson probably took some inspiration from that that story. Um, I guess you know the ideas of different like levels of heaven, and it you know it's it's kind of our our own flaws and shortcomings that will hold us back, or and like people in hell don't understand they're in hell. There's a lot of uh, shared concepts that I found very interesting. So if you like this film, go read that story. I think it's a there's a lot of a fascinating crossover, in it. and and it's it's C.S. Lewis, so it's 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 good. So 
you mentioned Robin Williams. Let's just dive right into the, discussing the cast. I mean, is it just me or is does Robin Williams seem like the nicest person on planet Earth? Seems like someone I just want to go give a hug to. I mean, just I I don't I've never seen him in a role where you just don't root for him unless he's absolutely been marked as the villain. I mean, <laughs> he's like that guy, and I, I don't know if any of you guys ever watched wrestling, um, but when they make a person like someone who is so popular with people, no matter what he, what they do, they could do something. He could do something villainous, and people are still going to look at him and be like, "No, we're cheering him on. We don't care. We don't care what you do. No, we like him. He's a good, good, good dude. Whatever." Yeah, like, I think previously my favorite uh, dramatic performance from him was Insomnia, where he does play the villain. Um, but even then, I think that there's a you know, kind of a deep. I can't say sympathetic, but you know. I guess kind of kind of empathetic and human side to the way he plays the character, um, and here he's just wonderful. Um, just both like just playing a really nice person. Like one of my favorite scenes is when he's at the uh, children's hospital and his wife calls and like she's kind of you can she's like on the verge of breaking down and panicking, and he kind of just drops everything and just kind of very sweetly talks her talks her through it and kind of does what he can to help and it's just kind of just such a, a lovely scene between the two um and I, it probably could have been saccharine with a different actor but he just he just totally pulls it off and i think it's a really wonderful moment yeah he that scene in, in particular uh and then the scene beforehand whenever he's he first talks to the little girl he he exudes likability like, it's impossible, especially in this movie, to watch him and be like, nah, I mean, seems all right. Like you, like you said, Chris, you just want to hug him. Uh, he's so nice. And it, But this, it feels, <laughs> what I love about Robin Williams, and I think watching this movie is finally whenever I realize, man, how much I miss him as an actor because he's just so fantastic, was whenever he plays these nice roles, not once does it ever feel phoned in. He he plays this character with right. such genuine sincerity. It feels like I'm watching an actual person. This isn't Robin Williams giving a performance. This is just this is this this character that Robin Williams is inhabiting it, but he is this person now. Um and we we talk about like one of the one of the best things actors can have control of is their eyes and be able to emote with their eyes. He can say so much just with expressions. Like whenever he's happy and he just has this huge grin across his face and his eyes are almost closed just because of how how big he's smiling. It it you just see the genuine, pure joy on his face. And then the second he he starts crying and he's upset about something, I feel like I'm mimicking his emotions. He he's a character who's who can manipulate your own emotions so so well that when he's sad, I get sad. When he's happy, I'm just ridiculously happy for him so as he's you know comforting his wife and comforting this child you know who's at this at the doctor's office whatever he's doing it's just so easy to root for him and like him and he's just such a compelling presence on screen yeah uh, and, and this role is like really an actor showcase he gets like to do the whole wide range of emotions he said uh, from like the most boisterous joy to like some of the most like soul-crushing despair i've seen on on film um and i is uh, moving on to the other 
other one of the main characters is uh, Annabelle Siora as his wife. Um, and this is, it's, this feels like a kind of a thankless role. Like the care, the character is, is as written is so like this. She's like kind of in like a deep depression, the entire film, almost to the point where it's not entirely, but almost sort of unlikable, but like that's obviously not her fault. But I, th- I think she does a great job of, you know, portraying some someone like who, who unlike Williams is, is like so deeply emotional and like uh, one of the themes is how uh, uh, Robin Williams character Chris kind of withdraws but she kind of, when, when uh, things get hard but she has to you know the way she is she has to feel every bit of pain and whatever she's going through and I think she really sells it well, oh I mean I think honestly her um her situation is very uh, opposite to what uh, Robin Williams's character is going through. I mean, he's he's experienced. Yes, he had to say goodbye to her once he once he dies, but then he's experiencing you know all the the honestly the brightness, the vibrant colors. His his heaven, so to speak, is so much different. And then you look back to uh, uh, I think her name is Annie or something like that. Uh, she's she's I mean they. She's in a depression because she feels like it's her fault. She feels like she, you know, she's the caused the death of their children. Uh, she caused the death of her husband, and so you just start seeing this. She can't go on without him, kind of a thing, and she just gives up on life. And honestly, the, the, that's kind of the, the backbone to the whole story is just just don't give up on those and, you love. And she plays it with such. Uh, conviction like it feels very real from her um and obviously the the story itself of everything that happened is incredibly tragic losing your kids and then your husband and the scenes in which she's just uh I'm, i'm thinking of the scene when he's like having her write out you know i still exist but she just throws it and she's running like walking around pacing around her house looking like conveying a mixture of confusion and anger it feels so real for her uh, it's it's just this mm-hmm. deep sorrow with you know confusion and anger mixed in and it's really heartbreaking to watch her story um and you know as we're told that she's killed herself it's that that makes uh, the the flashback scenes of her, you know, in the mental institution, him visiting her, makes those scenes so much more tragic and heartbreaking. After after the fact, after you yeah. know how it ends up, see to see what she struggled through, like you you, it's no wonder what happens after he dies, just because just because of the what the the toll that losing her children took on her, and to see her overcome that. Only to know as viewers now how it ends up. Those scenes were just, uh, I don't want to say difficult to watch, but they were very, very sad, like very, like I said, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. It's very raw. The emotion was very raw out of all that. Yeah. I, I really applaud this film's willingness to just exist within uh, human pain and grief and just. The, the like the it takes us to like the darkest some of the darkest places a person can go and not in a way that's just designed only to make us miserable and think about how pointless life is it, the film actually has a hopeful message but it's still 
again, I think I talked about this when we reviewed a monster calls is that I think the films that portray hope are all the more poignant for how truthful they are about darkness. And I think this film is incredibly honest, obviously often in a very uh, symbolic way, but it, it feels very honest about just human grief and, and the suffering we can kind of, we can endure or put on ourselves and the film's willingness to just, you know, sit in an incredibly hard, awkward moment for a while, just to let, to allow us to experience what this character is feeling is, is rare. Um, and there were a lot of scenes like that. And that alone, I think makes this film, uh, pretty incredible you know you know maybe that's the reason why the critics didn't care so much for the film was because of how much you really have to kind of uh accept that you know death is a real thing we're all gonna die i mean we're not we can't escape it um and we can't choose when we decide to die and so maybe the maybe the critics just for whatever reason looked at that and said nope i'm not gonna give into that fantasy and just they just couldn't they just couldn't accept it or acknowledge it I think critics are just jaded and cynical. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the next guy I wanted to mention is Cuba Gooding Jr. And this is really weird. I <clears throat> I don't know if I've ever experienced this before. Is I think I can honestly say I hated him for the first 20 minutes he was on screen. And then the moment his wife commits suicide, I completely loved him for the rest of the film. I don't. I don't know what it is. And I, uh, for, I, first of all, I didn't really care for the visual effect they had when he was on Earth. I thought his voice sounded weird. I thought he was just too glib and I didn't like his dialogue. I, I just – I hated everything about his performance and every time he was present, I was annoyed. But then once he's asked to be emotional, I think he's incredible. Um, just the moment – the scene where he has to break the news that his wife has committed suicide to – to the revelations about that he's actually uh, Chris's son, I thought I think he's he's incredible in those scenes. I, I don't know what's what it is about this film. Did any of you uh, feel like that? Uh, maybe not to that extreme, but I definitely did prefer him after the revelation of his wife's suicide because sometimes it just feels a little hammy. Sometimes I guess just like come on you can do whatever you want here. Like, let's just do... <laughs> it felt... I, don't, I think we, we talked about it a little bit, and you said you disagreed, so I'm, I'm curious to see uh, hear your opinion, but it does feel like the first portion of his character is just reveling in 90s cheese. Mm. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I, th I think where I differ with you, Gabe, is I, I wasn't so much annoyed with them i it's i kind of love 90s nostalgia so when i see this kind of cheesy weird blurry effect on him and he's just joking the way he is like right out of a 90s sitcom it feels like sometimes it i i was i could enjoy it but i do think that his performance after that particular moment serves the movie far better than it did before I mean, I, I particularly thought that uh, I, mean, I wasn't really annoyed by him, uh, I, though it was just I felt he was kind of useless at the beginning. I mean, I'm I'm kind of you're sitting there going, OK, is he supposed to be like the guide, you know, is he, or is he supposed to 
is he is he there for the audience to give the audience exposition about what the heck's going on or is he just there to give you know chris the exposition about you know just like to kind of fill him in he's like like the the guide for the whole heaven thing um but i didn't i don't know i didn't i didn't hate him i i I actually kind of enjoyed bits of it i threw the whole blurry effect uh I, i just thought it was like okay they put all the budget into the visuals they just had to. They had to just smudge, you know, put some Vaseline on the lens just to, uh, just to get this one to work. They had to use some some kind of practical effect for this. Um, but but overall, I think it's just a secondary character. I think he I think he did fine. Um, he does after the whole emotional scene though. He does kind of disappear uh, from the whole thing. Uh, he doesn't quite have as much screen time after given the news to, to Chris as he does before all of it. Um, but I think with that, with that particular scene of him, I felt like I was being prepped for a, a revelation. He says, we're, we're about to do something and it's going to be hard because it, it feels very real life. Like if you're having to prep somebody for news where he says, I'm, I'm going to be here with you. I'll be here for you, but you're about to have to hear something. And then whenever Robin Williams is so combative initially, yeah, uh, which is one of the greatest uh, emotional moments for Robin Williams in that movie. When he, that's that's one of the moments in this film where he truly gets angry as he's just yelling and there's just nothing but not hatred, but just the deepest kind of anger and annoyance you can have. And seeing Cuba Gooding Jr. kind of take it and respond to it with genuine emotion. I think that he was really good in that scene. Um, and then, you know, the moments that he is with him in hell, um, I think he does really well. In. Yeah, I, 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 I really want to watch it again, you know, with the knowledge we have later on. And to, just to see that the, those bits of uh, his performance again, I think it, it could, uh, for as emotional as they were, I think they could be even better with that knowledge. Um, and since we, we kind of touched on that, I guess my my... I guess probably my second biggest flaw of the film is I feel like the, the 20 minutes, maybe 20, 30 minutes, I'm not sure how long it is, between when Robin Williams gets to heaven and then finds out his wife is dead, I, they feel really aimless. Um, and there are moments of just like, that are amazing, you know, where he, um, just the, the paint landscape is completely brilliant and like nothing we've ever seen before. And it's the way it's executed is so well done. Um, but it, it just, it felt gl- very glib in comparison to how emotionally raw the rest of the film was. Like there's random poop jokes and just, and Cuba Gooding Jr. being cheesy nineties. Um, it's just for, like for that, like 20 minutes, it just, the film felt really aimless and kind of cheesy. Did, did any of you feel that? So to me, I I feel like it's th- those moments for the film are kind of for the character of getting him used to what this is like. Although I guess at that point she hadn't committed suicide yet, so it wasn't to try to to help him deal with the fact of what's going on and to get used to the afterlife before letting him know what's happened. I guess for me it, it just feels like it's the introduction to all this kind of fantastical looking stuff for the audience before the the heavy part of the story continues and uh i i think that it would have it would have worked a lot better had it been trimmed down a bit uh like the weird 
bird poop joke is weird. It it makes sense in retrospect, knowing it's his son. I mean, just messing with his dad like that. Um, <laughs> and it's absolutely gorgeous to look. Like you said, I I can't think of anything that looks like that. Just this this living watercolor world is just beautiful. I can't believe it was ninety eight, just because of how how well it's all rendered. Um, but yeah, it does feel like it takes too long. I, I, I would keep a lot of it because I, I think it, there is something about seeing him happy and get used to this just before the news of his wife. I think it's kind of needed, but we do get hit, like hit a certain point. It's like, okay, we've kind of accomplished what these heaven sequences need to accomplish. Why are we still here? Like, what are we doing now? Um, so I just think a little bit better editing and some, some trimming up of some scenes would have, uh, would have helped it a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The editing I think is one of my major gripes about this film in general. Um, because I mean, I didn't hate the heaven scene at all. I mean, even the amount of time we spent there, I was fine with it. I just, uh, I mean, I, honestly it, 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 I think it does what it needs to do. Like James says, it gets the audience up to a certain point. You're trying to be like, wow, this is visually stunning this is a fun time all this awesome stuff is going on so you get the audience up to that certain you know that peak and then you you drop the you, know, you pull the rug out underneath them with the news of the the wife committing suicide and even the um the additional painting of the tree uh that's that right there that's a signal of you know what's to come uh the the fact that she ends up uh essentially just destroying the tree kind of a thing that right there just is she's about she's she's not in a good place he's in a good place she's not in a good place so yeah and it establishes their connection that was a really well done scene yeah honestly but i I just think i just think that the heaven needs to be done i just i just think that it's a it's you know i I guess it's two heaven and hell are such such major aspects of the entire film i just think it's a unnecessary evil i guess you could say having them spend so long in that that period yeah there's a couple more of the uh, cast uh to mention before we move into some of the themes uh i think you know just sprinkle on a little bit of max von Sydow for instant gravitas in any film and it he makes works really any well. movie better i loved him in this after the revelation of who he is that's absolutely the form you take if you're wanting to be the guy that kind of leads you to this authority authority figure that's leading you through this wise guide yes you become max von <laughs> I, I get it <laughs> yeah um and uh werner herzog's here <laughs> that was funny because I, I was watching it and when he started talking he's like that sounds a lot like werner herzog is that him no it can't be and then watching the credits sure enough he's he's there as a face in the ground for 30 seconds so weird that's, too. That that's the entire scene is just strange. <laughs> yeah. And whatever we do get there, I, there's there's different things I want to say about that scene. Um, well, wait, why, why don't we just actually just since we're there, just dive into some of the the visuals and settings. If you want? What did you want to say about that scene? To me, um, so when we start off at the ocean, and we see all the faces and the bodies coming out of the water. That is haunting. Mm-hmm. The imagery in that scene was incredible, especially as we like we get the top-down view of them just being surrounded by these pale, lost figures trying to climb aboard. It was 
legitimately like unnerving. Um, and then, you know, we get to the, I guess even, you know, it's a little bit more traditional view of how like fire and, um, almost this Mad Max kind of landscape. Um, but it, it was still working to me. And then when we first see the sea of faces, that the idea of it and the, the looking at it was just really, really creepy. I, I just wish they they kept the dialogue out um, because I think the dialogue did a disservice to how haunting the visuals were. Because there's, you know, all the different faces are kind of calling out to each other and they're saying things. And some of it feels like it, like they're very much playing it for laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with that scene, I'm like, this is... I mean, it, it is a kind of comedic image, though. We got to walk across a field of faces. It, it's... I I mean, the idea of seeing a literal sea of faces is, I guess, kind of humorous. But just the way everything that we'd seen beforehand. And to me, even though it might sound kind of funny on paper, personally for me, seeing just this this long just muck and mud with legitimate faces stuck in it was really creepy. Like it feels mm-hmm. like something out of Silent Hill or something like that. Um, and so to have Werner Herzog randomly have this weird conversation and all these different voices giving somewhat comedic lines, I feel like it was undermining what the the visuals were establishing was that this place is not where you want to wind up. There's... it. it there really shouldn't be any sense of humor there. Yeah. It should just be like, oh, this is this is like right out of Edgar Allan Poe or something. There's some sort of painting out there that's creepy like this, and this is that brought to life. And so for that mm-hmm. weird cameo and the weird lines, I, I just think overall it, it didn't work well with the visuals. I, I think to improve that scene, I, I, I do like the, the dialogue between um, – that actor, whom I, I, I apologize, I do not know who he is. Um, Werner Herzog. Yeah, I mean, I may maybe I've seen things he, he, with him he, in he's, it. He's but. a really, really famous direct, film director. He's not much of an actor, actually. Oh, okay, um, but um, I think that dialogue between Robin Williams and him is needed because it hammers in that uh, the feeling of that hopelessness. That's his dad. He's seeing like. He, him thinking that his dad has actually become part of this this is where his dad ended up adds on to more of that hopelessness kind of a feeling granted you could have cut that out i don't think it's entirely needed but i still like that interaction um i think the what would, would have made the scene better in particular is if when he's walking across instead of go oh, excuse me excuse me oh, oh i'm sorry uh don't have that that's not needed. They're, that's where they're trying to add a little more com- comedic relief, and then you're in some of the 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 uh, the comments that the the faces make. Yeah, obviously, take that out. Don't have that. But I think the interaction though is pretty pretty spot on, and helps kind of hammer in the fact that this is a pretty hopeless like place. So yeah, um, just moving on to some of the other uh, the other <laughs> visuals and and just the settings we are put into in this film are just so impressive um the the whole the whole like set and production design um is again like nothing i've seen before uh you know you have the the, the landscape of paint the sea of lost souls which is yeah the, that's one of the creepiest images i've ever seen uh you know, then the gates of hell which are this 
ship graveyard with dead bodies lying around and fire and people screaming. It's people <laughs> with no mouths trying to scream. That was yeah. Really, that was some really creepy. Uh. Uh, and then the, the the Venetian Library, which is a really cool set, although moisture in books don't really mix, so probably not a very good idea logistically. <laughs> uh, and then the uh, up the final set piece, you know, the upside down cathedral, which looks I don't know how much of that they built, but that it looks completely uh practical and it's huge. Um, where the where, where their their house is, all of that I think is just it just it just makes the film so immersive. Yeah, I was gonna say to me that was one of the most impressive like designs of the movie. Because like you said, I was like, is wait, that it doesn't look like a matte painting. I mean it, it, it also doesn't look CG. Like it looks very tangible. Is this a is this a set? Is it a miniature? Is it like a blend of the two? It it looked very real. And this it felt both very like closed in and oppressive while also being like this huge like wide open space at the same time. But that was that was like to me, even though I'm not a huge Tim Burton fan, that felt like all the positive aspects of Tim Burton production design <laughs> in that scene. Um, how did they do that? <laughs> I mean, really, like the entire visual aspect that is, I mean, even the CGI, I, I, I'm, I'm baffled by how that looks. I mean, I know that, you know, in the 90s, you know, CGI came a long way, but to have something that still stacks up today with CGI, considering the fact that the Phantom Menace had CGI a lot in it, Star Wars. Only one year later. Only one year later, and it looks worse than this film. Like, what? I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just stunned at how beautiful this film looks, uh, and how they were able to make it. I'm actually trying to see how much the. Uh, did, did, I don't know if you were able, if you looked into this, but um, uh, Gabe, but. How much is is eighty million like the eighty million dollar budget? How much is that like today? Like in the nineties, was eighty million dollars like a big budgeted film in, in the nineties? Or I mean, do we know? Um, I think you know, blockbusters were already getting to like a hundred, hundred and fifty million. I think around that time, so that is that, that is a good that is a good size budget for a drama, no doubt. Um, but even like higher budgeted films these days often don't. And also, I think a lot of it is just the creativity. It's things we, it's designs that no one has uh, shown before on film. And uh, uh, I'm not sure who the production designer is, but uh, a lot of praise to that person. Also, again, Eduardo Cerro as the DP, who made all of it look really gorgeous. Yeah. Right. And then bef before we move on from the, the visuals, the one other scene I forgot to mention was the scene at the, the ocean or the lake. That is... That does look like that diorama or paintings come to life, like these mermaids in the sky where it's it doesn't look CGI. There's this weird fantastical practicality to the way that scene looks. Um, it's like mm -hmm. a dreamlike painting that somehow looks real. It's, it's so creative, so weird, all the different things, the blends of actual CGI and practical effects and sets and, th and things. It's all... You know, even if like eighty million, you know, like you said, it's a it's a decent sized budget, but even still, every penny was spent like wisely because this movie just looks so good. And there, from scene to scene, it's not like we get these these watercolor effects. And honestly, 
I feel like you'd be tempted to just really use those for the rest of the film. Like, oh, let's let's have this even more extended. But every new place just looks visually distinct from the last. It's it's so cool how how creative they were from scene to scene, even. Um, I just uh, I just did a I went to an inflation calculator. I don't know if we're really that interested in it, but I I got very curious. Eighty million dollars back in '98 is equivalent to one hundred twenty point five million dollars this year. Okay, I mean that's that's a lot, but that's just not like the biggest budget I've ever heard of. I mean, it's a, that's about a midline blockbuster because Blade Runner twenty forty nine was what one hundred fifty to one hundred eighty million dollars. Yeah. So yeah. I guess I'm moving back to some of the some of the themes. Um, I'm curious how how did, how did you guys feel about the film's uh, theological and, and uh, religious elements? Um, so like, for me, aside from the suicides go to hell aspect, even though they go for a more psychological rather than theological re- reason for why suicides go to hell, um, aside from that, there's really to no like Christian or in that case Catholic uh, Roman Catholic influence. Um, on this film, you know, for better or worse, I, I, I've read a lot of reviews like from Christians who like really tear at this film. It's, it's, it's not the Christian version of hell. Um, which, but honestly, I, I, I don't think this film was trying to be a treatise on what the afterlife would be like and, and, and any, or really any th- theological aspect. It seemed far more to be a parable and allegory of grief and, Kind of and just human connections and love, except just kind of like thrown up onto eternity, and like what that would look like if you, you know, took these very finite human emotions and made them put and put them against you know eternity and endless possibilities. Um, that's what it, it felt to me far more interested in in exploring the human emotions and psychology rather than you know being any kind of. Uh, religious, uh, whether anti-Christian or pro-Christian or whatever. Yeah, this is not a religious film in the least bit. This is uh, they the religion is used in this is just a, um, it's just a plot device almost. Uh, but it's not a it's not an important theme at all. Uh, the entire film is metaphorical. Uh, we don't. Uh, I look at I look at this more of just a, it's just as as the as a as a journey film I guess you could say it's a man going to save his wife, uh, whom he is a soulmate of. Uh, I guess if Christians have a problem with this film, they're kind of looking at it through the wrong lens. Personally, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, first of all, I highly doubt the director of this film or the writer of the book believe this is in any way what it's actually like. Like you said, it's just it's it's a plot device, and I, I remember uh, just only last week whenever we were talking about Equilibrium and how some of it almost looks like the, the villains almost look Catholic in imagery, and you know they're cl- called clerics and things like that. Um, I think a lot of the time, whenever religion is used, it's not used so much to make any sort of condemnation or you know any sort of praise. It's it's using thing imagery and ideas that people are familiar with you know i mean especially in america whether you're religious or not you you understand the imagery of it and if you're going to deal with the concepts you know of of death and what happens after death but more interested in using like life after death 
symbolically as opposed to like, what does happen? This movie is not asking what happens to us after we die. It's just an examination of grief and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I I think whenever he says, you know, where's God and all this? Oh, he's up there somewhere. That, That was kind of the movie saying that's, this isn't about that. Like this is, this isn't about theology. This isn't about heaven and hell. Literally it's, it's about characters and emotions and things like that. So I took that line of like, okay, we're not that kind of movie right now. Um, and so, well, yeah, that was pretty much it. So it, it just, it feels like it's using that because the idea of heaven and hell, we know what that means. We know what that is. Um, it's something that audiences can understand. Yeah. The only really real moments that did feel uh, kind of so sort of theological <laughs> the line of like, yeah where's god oh yeah he's here he's just you know off somewhere where he can't bother us you know um or there's, there's a conversation with like, cuba gooding jr about you know like matter versus consciousness and the, the the supremacy of the mind which kind of felt sort of drenched in some maybe some eastern mysticism but yeah otherwise it didn't really seem to go there um and so i guess diving into what the film I think it seems to be about, which is like, what if every, you know, decision and choice and relationship on earth kind of defined what we were and who we were and how we viewed uh, the life after death and just, again, like, you know, sprawled across eternity and I, I the things I think the parts where I think it really was the most poignant was where um even though Chris is an, just a wonderful person, the film is almost still kind of a deconstruction of a nice guy because we see through these wonderful glimpses into his life with his wife with his kids like he was kind of an overbearing father to the point you know where like he 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 wanted his son to be like him, you know, to like the things he liked, to excel in his areas he excelled at, to where, and to the point where his influence on his son and his son's insecurities in life kind of defined how he went into the afterlife, to the point where when he goes to help his father, he's so insecure with who he was, he feels like he has to become something else to earn his father's respect, to get his father to even listen to him. (laughs) Like, um, you know, f- father-son themes are like all over film, but I think this is also another, again, a very interesting way to portray it, as in taking this type of story we've all heard, seen before, and like, what would it be like if it was put into a place with where, where, where with all these possibilities? I think the idea, the ideas that are, I think you could make a whole film just in that father-son relationship, and I love that it's just this little kind of little uh, side story that just works beautifully and kind of comes into the main theme, but doesn't take over, even though I think it could. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was, well, I don't know what I could add. But yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, I really don't either. <laughs> I, will, I, w- I want to add one other thing on the religion thing, though. I just thought of this. Uh, they do make a point to emphasize reincarnation. Yes. Although it's, it's never shown, though. It's weird. It's never shown, but it is implied multiple times, uh, especially with uh, um, the the guide character. Uh, he implies that he's, you know, oh, in a past, in my past life, I was such and such. Uh, 
it is also implied that Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is someone who helps people find their way back to, to Earth. Uh, and it is also implied at, at the end when uh, Chris and his wife, they look at each other and say, hey, why don't we try doing reincarnation and rediscover each other all over mm-hmm. again? So it's never shown. I mean, it is technically shown right at the end of the yeah, film, technically. Say, yeah, we, we do see them. Uh, and it's really adorable. <laughs> it's about to say, so in my notes, that was a scene that, like, I mean, I guess technically falls in my negative because not not that scene itself, because like you said, it's kind of an adorable scene. Um, and it's just really sweet the way it plays out. But did did the idea of reincarnation help the themes of this movie? Like, is that was that necessary to explore? Do you, do you all think that had had it ended with them being together again with their children? Is that I mean, because to me, like, the, the catalyst of all of this was the loss of children. And I understand, like, that the most powerful relationship in the movie was between he and his wife. But to get to heaven and to finally be reunited after four years of loss, and then be like, all right, see you, kids. We're going to get reborn and meet each other and experience how awesome it, like, the, how awesome the beginning of a relationship feels. So, see you when we die again. It feels cheap. That honestly feels cheap, and it just totally takes away from the entire gravitas of the film, in my opinion. Oh, I thought it was sweet. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's sweet in theory, you know. But when you uh, when you take everything that James said, everything they had gone through, and they're thinking, "Hey, well, let's consider doing this." It, and honestly, this is a little nitpick of the entire film. Uh, Chris's character, for all the goodness that he has shown. And as much love as he has for his children, he's willing to sacrifice a life living with his children after he rediscovers his children. Uh, more so than, uh, yeah, he'd rather sacrifice the life that or in heaven with his children to go after his wife. Um, I was conflicted on that on that part because I was thinking, well, you know, it feels selfish either way you go, you know, kind of a thing. Like it's a bad crossroads to kind of be in. I, the, the relationship between a parent and child is one of, you know, preparation for them to go off and become their own person and to and to lead their own life. So, whereas a husband and wife, they, you know, they 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 stay together after the children are gone. I I, I think you know showing the, that as the the more important relationship because the the, the kids they. They have moved on to, in a way. I think you know, allowing them to go live their own lives and still the wife and husband being together, I think is. I I don't I don't really see a problem with that. Okay. Yeah, for me, um, so the scene when he comes out, I was literally writing a negative note uh, in my in my uh, phone where I, which is where I take my notes, and then I deleted it afterwards. Whenever he leaves the house initially, and he says, "You were right." Uh, you know, I bet you thought I was going to lose him on. I was in there too long. And I was like, oh, man, he's about to leave his, his wife in hell. He should be showing more grief. So I was in my notes saying, like, man, for a man who's leaving his wife to, like, in a situation where she's already crazy and is just going to, she's literally going to exist in a state of utter despair and insanity. And he's just like, oh, well, you were right. But then what I liked about his character is that 
to me, I, I mean, I get it. You you have missed your children for four years, but the decision, or one, first of all, I, I do kind of agree with Gabe, or the relationship between a parent and child is one of prepare, preparation. You don't make the oath to be with your children uh, till death do you part. So I think there's definitely an oath and a bond between a, a spouse that kind of supersedes others. Um, but then like the, the choice is, well, either stay with my children who are already in heaven and at the very least have each other or stay with my wife who's subjected to eternity in hell by herself. So I was actually kind of moved by the decision that, uh, or in like, like the character says, you know, you're going to make a guy choose eternity in hell with his wife over eternity in heaven with his children. Like that was to me pretty powerful that he was willing to, to exist in that state because of how powerful his, his bond was with his wife. But again, to me, it's like the movie also gives you this, the, the, the option that turns out to be the one that's happens in the ending where she's able to get out of hell and they're able to be a family together and so that that's kind of why I'm somewhat annoyed with the idea of the ending and reincarnation. First of all, just because reincarnation just feels like a weird thing to throw into the mix. Like it's just where, oh, also you can be born again, again, uh, and then again as many times as you want. Like it doesn't really help the themes of the film. And it's like y'all are a family again. The entire reason y'all lost y'all's or she lost her mind and y'all's relationship has gone through this is because of the loss of your children. So the idea that you already proved your, like prove your love to your wife by choosing hell. And now because of that choice, y'all are together as a, as an entire family. So I think it, the movie would have ended on a better note if it just ended there at that reuniting of them. I agree. Mm-hmm. But then we wouldn't have that adorable scene. <laughs> but you just, ah, oh, that ending, you just love that ending, don't you? And it's, I don't know. I, I, I love Puppy Hey, the, that's the thing. Even in my notes on my negatives, I do say I really like that scene. That of the boats crashing and the little girl laughing and the kids slowly kind of smiling back at her. It's a very adorable <laughs> scene. And I, I like it itself. I just don't like what causes it. Um, I, I don't think that it serves the themes of the movie really but yes it's i mean it's very cute it's a heavy price but what i gladly pay oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh and i guess since we're talking we're, we're there talking about his ultimate decision to help to stay with his wife uh i think you know that's i think where the themes of the film really come into play is in, in its exploration of grief and w- and depression and, and uh, you know what can be done to help pull someone out of that um i i really love the scene where after he's died after she he's died and she's at the graveyard and he goes he's like hugging her and trying to comfort her and for a moment you think it's working and then she just screams and you just feel this absolute helplessness and i think it, it, it's, it's very much how can it feel in real life you know where if some when someone else is going through grief and you just you just you just kind of you want to help them but you really you just kind of left with this this feeling of helplessness because it's it's something that's so difficult to face and 
we saw that Chris um through the through the flashbacks, which are I think beautifully placed, when his wife was is in the asylum, we were talking they're talking about how how the relationship got to this point to where his wife feels everything, whereas he was able to like completely close himself off and and he was so he was afraid he would be consumed by her grief, so he he kind of like distanced himself from her, and he you know he failed her in that moment, um, to the point where she was like driven into mental illness, and eventually he was able to you know pull her out, um, but and then you know I like it you know it, where in in death he is now kind of not really atoning, but he's given another chance to make the right choice you know to to do the things that he failed to do in life, whether it be with his son, with his daughter, or with his wife. And I really, I love, you know, the ultimate decision that does free his wife is him doing the one thing he could never do in life, which is, you know, share in her pain, like to the, to the fullest, um, as a husband. And I think it's really, really powerful. And is all the more powerful now that we've, we've, been allowed to see what that pain is and what it feels like for the characters. I, I keep thinking back to uh, Batman v Superman now. I'm sorry, but you know, I, I, fa- <laughs> How so? I, I failed her in life. I won't fail her in death. Yeah. <laughs> this is a nice. safe place to talk about Batman versus Superman. Ah, I feel so great now. Thank you. <laughs> and before I get into my main problem with the film, I wanted to talk about another scene that I loved and the one scene that I legitimately broke down and cried at was his reunion with his daughter. Oh, yes. Um, and I, I love that, you know, both of his children's afterlife is since, the, since they were kids when they died, they are still kind of working through his influence on them. And both their afterlives are still kind of defined by their father. I, I think that way that is kind of would realistic to someone who is still a child, you know, at heart. Um, I love that, you know, his sons is more negative, but he, he had, since he had a better relationship with his daughter, she, like he he took it on his his that that image to because he thought it would earn his father's respect. Whereas she just did this because she loves her daddy and she thought and she knew he liked this. Uh, and the moment where it's finally revealed, it, oh gosh, it's 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 so good. Yeah, I was I was weeping like a baby. Yeah, I man, I cried at multiple points. I, I think the that was definitely one of them. I think the scene that got me the most though was. Um, when she ripped up the plane ticket as a, as he was there. Oh man, oh, yeah. that scene just, that was the end for me. Yeah. Um, do I have y'all anything you want to mention before I move into my main uh, criticism? Uh, no. I think I'm ready to hear it. Okay. Um, and that is how the final conflict is resolved. Um, I love all the ideas and the fact that he's willing to go and sacrifice himself for her in that way. <sighs> But I guess this also goes back to another point before, which is the uh, the, the the soulmates clause, which I, th- I really think is dumb. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, there's no way to do it. Oh, wait, you may be soulmates. It's really rare, but it happens. These two souls in eternity made for each other. Um, because the entire film has been showing us that love is a choice and an action to keep on going, even when everything around you seems to say you shouldn't. But but it's okay. But but then. then to, I think have the whole soulmates thing just undermines that. Just oh, oh it was just fate. So I, I kind of have two problems with that whole thing. One of them is exactly what you were saying, which is 
the idea of like, oh, this is possible because y'all are soulmates, which is something that was technically entirely out of y'all's hands. Like, y'all didn't choose to be soulmates, y'all just were, and so naturally y'all came together. And that's at at odds with the idea of what maybe they weren't soulmates. Like, the reason they were great together is because of their unwillingness to quit. Uh, and so, if well, of course they're not going to quit. They're soulmates. Like it, it's just it doesn't work together super well. Feels like a cop um, out. Yeah. Whereas it's like no, it's they're not doing this because they're soulmates. They're doing this because they will not quit. It's their it's their power to choose to love each other through anything that's able to get the job done, not just this random term that's you know just kind of I don't know. It's meaningless. It, it felt weird. And then. Yeah, and then the the other problem I had was just it also felt a bit. She's like, "Oh, this is rare, but y'all are what we call soulmates here, and this can only happen." Like it, it felt cheesy to a point where it's like, "This is a different movie." I feel like, um, so yeah, not not an enormous criticism, but I I do think as big of a deal as they do make it to be this idea of them being soulmates and inseparable is at odds with what the movie's trying to say about their love. And that, that kind of I th- leads into my biggest issue, is the, that the ending, the, the way they get out of hell feels cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, feels I love rushed. the sacrifice. Rushed. Yeah, I, I think, the, I try, I've been trying to think of ways that I, 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 I think a sad ending where he's just, he, now he's just as a sparing his wife, would have also betrayed the themes. I think uh, the power of love, whatever. But I think that there is there is beauty and value in you know sharing someone else's grief and walking them through that, helping them come up, rise above it. And I think that's the themes of the film. So I, it's not that I want a sad ending, but the entire film has been telling us, "Oh, this is impossible. You can't do that." And to just whatever, I, I guess, because they're soulmates, they get they get out. I, and be, uh, so I think. I guess the only other way I could think of that would have been consistent with the rest of the film, but also um, show and and successfully uh, execute the film's themes would be maybe if they stayed in hell, but after he freed his wife from her depression, they kind of like the house became light, and there's like light around the house, and like maybe maybe. They are like slowly, almost like missionaries, like slowly rebuilding hell from the inside out, just through their love and through their willingness to, to just put in the work. Um, maybe they're spreading the, the light for, even from the inside of hell or something. I think just walking in, oh, I love you, we're never going to leave you, and all of a sudden they just flash out and they're free. I think it, the entire film has been telling us how many consequences there are, and to just brush them aside felt really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of thought about that too. Whereas, I mean, Max von Sydow's character was consistently, I feel like, dry, his character in a large, to a large extent, was there to remind the audience of like, this is, this is impossible. This isn't done. This trip was always more for you than for her. Like, we we are told explicitly multiple times, like this. There's never. Technically, we can't say it's impossible, but nobody here has ever seen it. And then you're like, okay, well, I choose to stay here. Boom, we're back in heaven. 
like I, I don't really know how else how would you show other than just some weird montage like the the passage of time and hell to make the to make the exit and entrance into heaven uh feel earned how, how do you do that without i don't know really messing with the pacing or i don't know because i because I, I agree with that but i just also don't want the movie to feel like it has to kind of bog down the the story and what's happened just to, to make that exit feel earned I, I feel like they they were trying to at least towards the end there they they seemed like they were going to start to do something because it didn't just oh she you know she remembers in flash she started like there's a there's a little bit that happens before that where he's like you know she starts to remember but he's like oh i feel i feel cold all of a sudden something's changed and then he like turns the stone or something and then the flash happens and he wakes up and i'm i'm like what just happened no one really explains it it just you just have to kind of believe oh well he uh you know he reconnected with her and just barely made it out alive sort of thing it was weird yeah yeah again it's not that i want a sad ending i don't i don't i don't, I don't think the film was leading to a sad ending it's just it, the way it was executed i think it it hurts the film as a whole. Not I mean I, nothing can undo the emotions and journey we've been on up until then. But uh, yeah, was well, one more thing I wanted to mention. Um, what, what, what did you guys think about the whole aspect of you know so, someone's life defining their afterlife? You know where where the, a suicide goes to hell not because suicide is the unfor- unforgivable sin, but simply because suicide is you know the final surrender to despair. And they're they're essentially transferred to the afterlife with the exact same mentality they had beforehand. So those in hell are there because of the choices they made previously, and simply because they are they have surrendered to whatever flaw they had. Um, and even in heaven, like the echoes of every of every flaw or triumph, kind of. Is still there? We see that with the son and the daughter, and how they re- how they interact with the parent. What did y'all think about that? I actually thought it was really interesting. Um, you know, even though theologically, it's you know, there's a huge amounts of disagreements I have with the film. Kind of already established, the movie is not here to make any sort of major theological comments. But I, I did think the idea that su- suicide being the ultimate. I guess what you said, surrender to despair. And I, I, it weird, weirdly enough to me, it all works based on the rules that the movie's kind of set up where you are, you're born into the afterlife with, like you said, all of your positive traits, your negative traits. And if that was the state of mind you were in, it kind of makes sense based on what the movie has told us about the afterlife that you are born already in that state of mind and it's like everything that you see everything you imagine is built to kind of affirm your ideas so i I thought it was interesting and i thought that the movie did well and that it played by its own rules i agree with everything james just said (laughs) all right perfect all right is there anything else you guys want to mention before we move into our final thoughts Uh, i think i'm ready yeah i think i'm ready too all right um uh, why don't you start chris just kind of what, what do you want to leave our audience with about this film um, if you want to see, I guess if you just want to see a, a gem of the nineties that or an, un, like, I guess you could say it's a, uh, a, not so much of a gem, but it's like, uh, 
it's hidden below the surface a little bit. You got to dig around for it before you find or dig around in the ground before you actually find it. Um, I, I mean, it's probably one of, one of my personal favorites for the nineties. And honestly, I guess, I guess and this is, this is just an interesting connection I made considering how Robin Williams passed away. Um, this is a, this kind of put more of an emotional impact this film made was more emotional to me as because we know uh, Robin Williams passed away due to suicide, and suicide is one of the major themes. You know, one of the things of grief that you know the the, the lead actor, being Robin Williams, deals with in, in the film. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's it's really sad, but it, but also it's so, it's so well done. I'm probably like fumbling through everything I'm saying right now, but. <laughs> I'd, it's it's a it's a must see in my opinion, especially if you're a fan of Robin Williams. It's a must see. And what about you, James? What do you think? Uh, what are your final thoughts? Uh, I I think that this movie, first of all, it's, I I started crying uh, in this the doctor's <laughs> office whenever he was first with the uh, the little girl. A lot largely due to what uh, what Chris said, because of you know us having lost Robin Williams and this. It had been a while, probably since we'd seen Insomnia, that I had seen a movie with Robin Williams, and that—that's as much as I love that film and love his performance in it. It's not really the the movie you watch to like conjure up all, all of your nostalgic feelings about all of his movies and how amazing of an actor he was, like in terms of your childhood. And so, like the first scene of just seeing him interact with this kid and his wife. Uh, and how inherently likable he is and the, just the life he brings through his eyes and his smile. Like, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm just now like realizing how much I miss him as an actor. And so I think if you haven't seen this, this is just a great movie to remind yourself of how fantastic Robin Williams was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've already talked about it when we first ta- uh, started the, the episode about his his performance in this and the, the huge range he's able to give, but this is just every positive aspect almost of of his acting ability on display we we see him at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows so it's just a a really powerful performance from him and i think one of the i guess my most positive thing about this movie is you had brought up a monster calls before and this is kind of the same about that is it deals with death in a way that's not like overbearingly sorrowful and horrible it's not like oh look death is terrible isn't it this sucks feel bad it it deals with it in a way that's incredibly raw and incredibly honest but in a way that still provides hope and so to see such an honest depiction of this couple that's their whole or not their whole life but like from losing their kids to losing the uh, to losing the husband of the relationship, just racked with grief and sorrow, seeing how um, unflinching the movie is in its depiction of this, while still, I think that I think not dealing with the hope of the film would have been a cop out. So to see this honest and raw depiction of this of this couple with the hope that it's given and two really powerful performances, it really if you love robin williams and if you love just emotionally powerful uh powerful movies i think that this is definitely one you should watch dang you still hold my closing thoughts dude 
yeah, I guess just to add a couple things is um, I I always love when uh, when films you know do really yeah uh, you know really sweet depictions of marriage and I, even though this one is incredibly hard I think it, it, there's there is as you said there's an honesty to how it shows you know th- these people who are they are both incredibly different you know especially in how they reacted to the grief. Um, and just, just showing these two people kind of working together, you know, to try and and live through the, the worst kinds of circumstances in ways, like you said, it just allows us to fully experience this grief, but also give us uh, hope um, is really powerful. Uh, just Robert Williams, amazing. The guy who... The guy, as a, his as a dramatic actor, he was just as good, even if not better than him as a uh, comedic performer. Um, man, and then obviously we've raved about the visuals. There are so many creative sites that I have never seen before and probably will never see again in a film. Um, again, yeah, there are some flaws I think in some of its execution. There's some some parts that feel aimless, but. Just all the feels you feel make up for whatever problems that there could have been. Uh, yeah. So uh, that was our uh, review of What Dreams May Come. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to go please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as Underrated Podcast. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at underrated underscore pod. And uh, Chris, again, you want to sh- uh, tell the audience uh, where they can find your work online? Yeah, so uh, most of, uh, pretty much everything I've ever done is at articleasylum.wordpress.com. Um, and if you want to know when, whenever we post some new stuff, because there's a lot of epic stuff that comes out out there. There's a lot of great writers on that site. Uh, you can follow us on uh, Twitter at Article Asylum. Uh, or you can go to their Facebook page and like that as well. Um, and if you just want to follow me because you think I'm a cool cat, then you can follow me at Daylin07. That's at D-E-Y-L-I-N-0-7. And uh, man, uh, thanks for coming on, Ed. Thanks for bringing this movie. This I'm so glad I, uh, <laughs> we got you on and got to see this movie. Yeah, that was the whole purpose that I wanted to, to come on was just to, to show you guys this film. I mean, I... I I wasn't anticipating me to bring too much to the conversation because you guys are pretty pretty brilliant with all with all your uh, your note taking and uh, uh, being able to just to discuss things. But I feel like this is a film that just needed more people to, to it needed it needed to be brought to the surface a whole lot more. So I'm glad you guys actually enjoyed it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, this movie is why this podcast is a thing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right, and uh, so for next week to celebrate all the horrors of Halloween, uh, we will be doing a bunch of horror films for the rest of the month. And uh, so we will be doing Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, which is a absolutely delightful horror comedy uh, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, unfortunately. And uh, I'm really looking forward to watching that again. I, I loved it the first time. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it on Netflix and thinking, oh, the trailer looked, you know, mildly amusing. Uh, and yes, it's pretty amazing. So, until next week when we start really getting into the mood of October, we will see you next time. See ya! Oh, hot dog, Tucker, have you ever seen anything like that in your life? 
There's nothing so special about them. They're just your average college girls. Nothing average about that. You know something, Dale? She's just human. Why don't you go over there and talk to her? Talk to her? What? What in the world would I say? I don't know. Tell that you got a vacation home. That'll probably impress her. Are you out of your mind, Tucker? These are college girls, okay? They grew up with vacation homes and guys like me fixing their toilets. You gotta have some faith in yourself, man. Girls can smell fear. Now, come on. You are a good-looking man. More or less. You got a damn good heart. Yep. I mean, that's two things right there. Now, go on. Get over there. What, what's the worst that can happen? You know something? You're right, Tuck. I'm gonna do it. All right. I'm gonna do it right now. All right, hold up, hold up, hold up. All right, no. Whatever you say, just smile and laugh. That shows confidence. Smile and laugh. Okay. Do it. All right. <laughs> 